Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest this week is Jetta Mali. And um, I have quite a lot of biographical material here about Jetta that I could read, but we'll let her tell her own story. But I'll, I'll just read a fairly short thing. Um, Jetta is the executive director and founder of Global Paradigm LTD, which delivers training programs for individuals and organizations seeking a completely new approach to the age-old dilemma of how to make life, business, and society work effectively and harmoniously. Jetta's unique approach identifies and maps the cohesive design underlying every system from an individual person to a solar system. It reveals the hidden patterns within every aspect of life that are responsible for how things turn out. Jetta provides an in-depth examination into the nature and function of this design and the mechanics that make it work. Our understanding of our understanding and use of these mechanics determine the extent to which we can produce consistent and reliable results. Jetta is sought after for her precise understanding of human beings, the contribution each person makes individually and collectively, and the impact this has on the world in which we live. Her work examines the link between our design as human beings and our hardwired predisposition towards peace, collaboration, and contentment. And then Jetta is on the boards and and members of all sorts of interesting international organizations. I won't bother to read all those right now. But, you know, if you've been listening to these interviews, you realize that, in my opinion, spirituality is not just some fulfilling, subjective thing that has no relevance to the external world. In fact, it's really the fuel which can and, and must change the external world if the external world that we live in, or we in it, are to survive. And so my ears always perk up when I hear of someone who is deeply spiritual but is applying that in a practical way to affect change in our world. And I first, uh, I'd heard your name, Jetta, but I, I really tuned into you for the first time when I listened to your Conscious TV interview with uh, Renata McNay. I often listen to those, and I feel like those Ian and Renata are friends of mine, even though I've never met them. But I, I re really enjoyed your story and uh, the sort of the depth of experience that you have had since childhood. And even though it might be somewhat repetitive, and people can listen to that interview to get details that we might not cover here. Perhaps we could start with that, and uh, then we'll segue eventually into what you actually teach. Sure. Where would you like me to start? Oh, 1967? <laughs> sure. The summer of love. Exactly. <laughs> uh, that's what I always think it was an auspicious time to arrive, that's anyway. A, that's about when I, was that when you were born, 67? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's, exactly. That's when I first took LSD and had my, <laughs> my eyes kind of opened up. Well. That's when my eyes first opened up too, because I was born in May 1967. Mm -hmm. So that's when I arrived. And, you know, at the time, I didn't know much else about my life other than that's what I'd been allotted. It's hard, you know, looking back and thinking, well, was it always this way? Or is it because it's this way now? I assume it was that way then. But I did always feel slightly different different to what I don't know to the people around me I had different I had a different inner life to my outer life but on the surface of it I mean that was that was known to me that was all apparent to me but to anybody who was in my world such as my mother my father my sister my friends at school 
if they were asked to remember me, they would just say she was just an ordinary kid, you know, just growing up the same as the rest of us. So it looked very normal on the surface. All of the strange happenings happened to me specifically and personally on an internal basis in terms of my perception, in terms of the way I processed information. You know, as I said with Renata, my relationship with time was often very different. I had strange, I had strange experiences with relating to the physical body, relating to energy and all, and all of that kind of stuff. But it didn't really happen on a consistent basis. And apart from a couple of times, it didn't really happen at my will. It happened more sort of just spontaneously. Okay, and this didn't happen in 67, obviously, because you'd just been born. So maybe you I'd were, just you been were born. five so or six started, years old or something. Yeah, exactly. It started around four, five, six years old. And, and then I think there was a little hiatus during teenage years where I was always a very happy kid. You know, oh, and, uh, and before you go on, can we have a couple of specifics? Like, you, you know, you said your relationship to time, your, your strange energy experiences and all. What were you actually experiencing as a young child? I would often find myself in a time reality that didn't match the time reality of those around me. So I was operating on a much quicker time than those around me. So when this happened when I was little, of course, I found this very frightening and I tried to explain it to those around me. But you can imagine what a, a six-year-old sounds like saying everything is going fast. I can't walk properly because my legs are in, in one time reality and my internal state is in another time reality. So even my physical body and my time reality didn't always match up. What does that so, mean exactly? Does it mean like you're walking down the street and it's as if everything is zooming really fast past you or something and no, you're, and you're was, in slow it, motion or vice versa? It felt as if my internal state was in a much, much faster time reality than everything else, including my physical body. So my physical body would feel like it was going at a snail's pace and I could see my legs moving and I knew that they were moving as legs are supposed to move when they walk. But the way I was processing it was way, way, way faster. And so there was a disconnect and it made me feel, I had no way of rationally processing these experiences. It just made me feel a little afraid, a little odd. And when I tried to convey them to those around me, I could see that it just caused alarm and got me trotted off down the doctors for, <laughs> <laughs> for a brain review. You know what it sounds like to me? It sounds like you were sort of, you had one foot in another dimension as if. I think that's what was and happening. And time yeah. functions differently in other exactly. dimensions, you know. So you hadn't quite integrated the, the several dimensions in which you were living. Yes, yes, I think that's exactly what was happening. But of course, I had no language for that. I had no reference point for that at the time. I also had some very fun, interesting experiences with experimenting with my energy and my energy body and my size relationship to uh, objects around me. Hmm. And I would experiment with that very freely and it was a kind of playful thing but again you know it's funny because it never occurred to me to say to a friend oh can you do that too or let's try this it was just stuff that I would do by myself when I was in my room and just do quietly and I never shared that with anyone. So like for instance regarding size I mean there are actually cities in the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali uh, called Anima and Mahima or something becoming tiny and huge and mm -hmm. I don't know if the yogi's actual body becomes tiny and huge, but perhaps some kind of 
subtle exactly. body or something. Does yes, it. exactly. So you might find yourself bigger than your house or something yes, like that, right? Yes, Yeah, so I could play with that. And that I could do at will. I would play with that sense of expanding or contracting mm. or being able to move myself across a room. And again, I'm almost certain my physical body didn't move, but I was able to be able to get my eyes right up against the far wall and then come back again and was able to play with that sense of distance as well. So I was able to move at will around the room and, and within my physical form. But you know, it's interesting how natural that feels to a child. It never occurred to me to double check with anyone else whether they had it too. And it never occurred to me not to do it. And I don't even know how it occurred to me to do it. It just just one day I started to happen and I just went, oh, this is fun. We'll yeah. just play with it. I remember when I was a kid, I had an argument with my mother that I, I, I was sure that when I had was younger, I had been able to fly. And I said, mom, I used to fly. <laughs> I used to fly around the house. You know, I'd fly up and down stairs. And she said, no, you didn't. You must have been dreaming or something. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I don't remember ever flying, although I actually still to this day have so many flying dreams, which are very cool, but I, I don't remember flying. But I do being able to have this very elastic sense of of presence and movement. Uh, and then it was a playful thing. It was a malleable thing. The one thing that was clear to me, which was an eye opener, was that it it followed my direction. So that when I intended something, mm -hmm. it happened. Yeah. And it happened immediately without any question. And so I got to see the power of intention through that and the, and its effect on energy. And I You mean this subtle stuff happened by intention of Exactly. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I mean, it just started to happen of its own accord, but then the direction of movement and whatever I asked to happen would happen. Mm -hmm. So it responded very readily. And how do you understand that now from adult perspective? I understand it from the point of view that our thoughts are electrical impulses which imprint energy, and the energy then is duty-bound to follow suit. Do you um, think this is much more common among children than we realize? I don't know. I mean, I have children and they've sometimes related unusual things to me, but I don't know, maybe it happens to them and they don't share it with me. Mm. Um, I don't know. But I didn't get the sense that anyone else in my childhood was experiencing it, but then I could be wrong. Yeah. Okay. yeah. What I've seen in interviewing a lot of people is that people who blossom spiritually later in life very often have unusual childhoods. They've got a lot going on when they were kids. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, and sometimes they completely forget it during their teenage years and sometimes not so much, but there's usually some, they come into this life already popping, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I was a bit of a late bloomer in that sense. <laughs> and it's interesting that you say that during their teenage years, they forget it because that's what happened to me. We all get uh, a little crazy in our teenage years. Yeah, my family, my family life wasn't exactly a bowl of cherries. And so I had a lot of material that I was, you know, dealing with and sad about and having to process. And that takes a lot of your focus and your energy. Yeah, so I didn't have that sort of like a carefree, a Pollyanna existence. No, me neither. <laughs> okay, so you had this childhood in which lots of interesting stuff was going on. And I guess, did you kind of tell people about it and then you got strange reactions and so you 
kind of learned to keep your mouth shut? The only person I shared anything with was my mother. And um, she's probably at the opposite end of the spectrum of being able to process that information. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, of course, you know, she followed what avenues she thought were correct and took me to the doctor. Yeah, to get checked out. And uh, the doctor said she probably had a temperature. She prob and and when she gets a temperature, she becomes delusional. Mm. So that that was the explanation that was given to her, and she didn't think any more of that. But I could see that it was completely incomprehensible to her, and that I did take note of. That is no point in trying to explain it to her because she just doesn't get it, and she would be sort of borderline concern slash irritated <laughs> so, <laughs> it's not a great framework to give her more information yeah mm. okay so then uh you got into your teenage years and anything unusual there no i don't think so i think at that stage though i started to realize that that i had i didn't even know how to put it that that my inner life and my outer life were two separate realms. And I'm going to be 47 next week, and I'm still in the process of, you know, trying to match them up, <laughs> make them fit. But that's when I first became aware of the fact that, you know, my inner life, all the d desires and, and imagination I had, wasn't necessarily getting translated around me. So I suppose there was a little bit of a an existential malaise or there was a disconnect that I noticed that caused me to want to know more. So that's really when the source of all my questioning started. That raises an interesting question. You know, I, I think whether people have a spiritual orientation or a mundane one, they all kind of realize um, that their inner and outer lives are, there's a disconnect somewhat. I mean, it's, the, the inner life is so much more malleable than the mm -hmm. outer life. On a mundane level, it's, it's easy to imagine winning a million dollars or earning a million dollars, but it's a lot harder to make that happen in the material realm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think it's probably a universal phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I would say so. And, you know, I speak to a lot of people now who have never had that inner life acknowledged or met, and they find tremendous comfort and relief in that mm -hmm. when it finally comes around or they finally meet someone who can understand that and speak to them on that level. And I didn't have anyone. I, you know, I had nobody. I made my own search. You know, I took myself off at 17 to the local church and, you know, harangued the vicar until he agreed to baptize me. You know, at 17, I could stick my own head in the font. And I cobbled together my own godparents. And my parents were slightly bemused and bewildered by this and I didn't stay with Christianity very long but it was just showed you that I was looking for something I was looking for some kind of answers to you know the intangible yeah. and wasn't finding it in my school life my home life so I looked for it elsewhere so what did you move on to after Christianity well when I was 21 I think 2021 I was pretty young I went to Asia which I thought was going to be a year-long trip and very quickly found myself staying in uh, monasteries and so very quickly found Buddhism. I, oh, actually, no, I went first to India. And when I was in India, I studied, you know, Hindu philosophy and I was already a yoga practitioner. So I did a lot of advanced yoga and then moved on to Buddhism and sort of felt that I'd found my, my second home, really, within Buddhism. 
Is that where you picked up the name Jedha Mali? No, actually, my Jedha was given to me by my parents. So, oh, okay. It sounds like yeah. one of these spiritual names, you know. I know, funnily <laughs> enough, you know, because both my parents are atheists. Ah. So, actually, the story my mom tells, my dad's passed away, so he can't even corroborate it. But my mom says that she was trying to call me Jennifer, mm -hmm. and my dad didn't like it. And so she suggested Jenna, and he heard Jedha. And that's how I got my name. But how, how they came up with that spelling, I don't know. Because it's the same spelling as the capital of Saudi Arabia. Yeah. But when I went to Israel, they said, you know, a Jeddah is a strong spiritual woman. So I thought, way to go, Dad. He's right on the money. Sounds a little bit like Jedi. I know. <laughs> I'm proud of that. So what were some of your experiences and realizations over in India with, with studying with Buddhists? Well, it had started... It started with the Hindu philosophy and, you know, doing a lot of yoga and meditating twice a day and staying in ashrams. And then I very quickly found that with a little bit of discipline and structure and guidance, my inner life just opened up and it just literally opened up like a box and became very accessible to me very quickly. And I also knew from the guidance that was being given to other students in the class that my experiences were surpassing that and were sort of in another realm, another league. Can you give us some specifics? I could travel at will into disembodied states. Like astral traveling? No, I didn't go anywhere else, but just being able to leave the body behind and enter into, you know, a sense of vastness, mm -hmm. enter into right, deep sort samadhi, of sort of thing. instant samadhi. Right. I could perceive, see, and hear non-incarnate entities and had crystal clear vision of them and was able to hear their uh, guidance. I was able to enter into very, very deep and beautiful states of light and bliss and the teachers didn't quite know what to do with me and that was the same with Buddhism too. There was a bit like, oh, well, you know, that's not quite supposed to happen just yet. So <laughs> I'd, I wasn't quite sure how I did it. And the funny thing was, you know, to this day, I'm still able to do that. But funnily enough, it hasn't shortened, well, who's to say, you know, because I've only got the life I've got, but it hasn't taken away the lessons of having to integrate that into the physical life and make that accessible in my daily life. And so that's why that's such a specific part of my teachings now, being able to integrate it. Because it's one thing to be able to access it. You know, we all want to be able to just sort of jump on this magic carpet, click our fingers and be in some other state. But really, there's no point to that unless you can utilize the wisdom and the energy that you're accessing and make it available through your physical body here on earth, which is the whole purpose of evolution. Yeah, that's a very common theme actually. And many people I talk to, um, both you know, people I interview and people, other people I talk to is, you know, they can, it's one thing to have these marvelous experiences. It's another thing to live it in daily life and to, yep to have some kind of integration or stability of it amidst the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I think I've got through my life so far just some kind of like massive fluke because it hasn't all been a process of steady conscious intent. 
So I relate to the slings and arrows. But you know, I but, bet you experienced something which we might call su supportive nature. I bet you experienced that to a high degree, which would be, you know how you mentioned these disincarnate beings that you would see and, and communicate with. I don't know whether they would be involved in this, but don't you feel that, you know, as a result of this depth, this sort of vertical dimension of your life, things kind of work out on the horizontal dimension in what might to seem to be almost miraculous ways sometimes. It's, it's sort of like the, the gods are on your side, so to speak, you know? Yeah. Well, I have, I have been really, really blessed with unusual circumstances and coincidences and all the things that you mentioned. And because it's happened pretty consistently since I was a very young adult, I've become used to that in a way. And, you know, sometimes I stop and think, my goodness, if I actually shared my experiences, I, I sort of kept that privacy around what I experienced throughout my whole life. I don't even share it with those I work with. But sometimes I think, my goodness, it would be, be quite a read if I were to share, you know, some of the strange things that had happened and the, and the wonderful assistance I've had all along. Yeah. And I think it's also because I didn't have, you know, until I went to Asia and I, yes, I had teachers and I was immersed in the, the philosophy of it, but that's not the same as feeling that I belonged there. So because I never had a sort of family or community where I really felt I belonged, it felt like home to me, the masters that looked after me became like my family mm -hmm. and became my guidance. Just one m more little bit on this theme. Uh, there's, a, there's a song which uh, called Born Under a Bad Sign. I think Cream performed it. And uh, one line is, you know, if, if it wasn't for bad luck, I wouldn't have no luck at all. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but I, I, I don't believe in luck. You know, there's some people who, you know, they do seem to have a cloud over their heads and it's always raining. And other people seem to live a charmed life and everything goes really well. And it might be interesting maybe later in the conversation to investigate that phenomenon. And, you know, you, there's a, a chapter in one of your recordings called Unseen Helpers. might be interesting to, uh, you know, analyze or discuss why it is that some people seem to get a great deal of support and, and aid in fulfillment of their desires and other people seem to be thwarted at every at every turn yeah. let's come back to that because uh, i want to keep talking about your story so who are some of these i don't suppose any of these teachers you studied with would be anyone 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 listening would have heard of or or yes were they? absolutely they are oh yes. okay like whom yeah Dalai Lama, you know, or didn't you spend some time with him? I did spend some time with the Dalai Lama, yes. No. I took my bodhisattva vow with the Dalai Lama. Mm -hmm. Very rashly, I might add, because he gave us about five opportunities. He said, you know, this is, a, this is the sort of karmically binding contract, which is going to apply to every single life from here on in. And of course, you know, you're young and you're very idealistic and you say, yes, of course I will do that. Of course I will devote the rest of my existence. And then... Not uh, only yes, this life, but you've just, you've taken a vow to just come back again and again to, to help again, as again much as you again can. Again and again until the job is done. Cool. And um, he said, you know, about five times, you know, this is really a binding thing. You can't get out of it. And if you try to, you know, it will attract... Uh, unhelpful forces in your life. Mm -hmm. So, you know, best not take it at all than, you know, take it rashly. 
and um, I was quite a willful little thing in those days and I I think I just sort of plowed ahead and said no I'm going to do this <laughs> and uh, so <laughs> I of course to remember that you know better get better get good with uh, human life and physical life because I'm going to see a lot of it. How long were you over there? I ended up spending about 10 years in all in Asia. You know, I was coming and going, but mm -hmm. there was about 10 years of my life where I was, you know, spending a lot of time there studying and, you know, so doing a lot of yoga. Early 20s through early 30s. Yeah, exactly. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Give us some, uh, you know, impression of it. I mean, you, deep samadhis and wonderful experiences and seeing angels and so on. You're having all these experiences. Anything else noteworthy, although those things are, are obviously pretty profound? I learned that no one specific philosophy or discipline was going to work for me. And all the time that I was learning the mantras and following the steps and trying to be, you know, a good Buddhist, I took my vows, I, you know, I sort of was trudging along that path. It felt like it wasn't going to meet me on the level that I wanted to meet existence. And so it, within me, I felt very strongly that I wanted, you know, my internal clarion call was, I don't want to meet any intermediaries. I want to just deal directly with God. Was there in the Buddhist teaching a lot of emphasis on intermediaries, uh, both both human uh, and, and somehow, you know? Not so much in there, but, you know, with, with everything, with the Hindu philosophy, you know, with Buddhism also, um, there's no, there's not a lot of emphasis, but there is a lot of emphasis on ritual and protocol and vows and all of this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I just felt that I, I would be doing that for... You know, Buddha says it takes six countless great eons to get enlightened, which to me seemed like an awful long time, especially if I was going to be coming back in human form all that time. Yeah. So it felt too cluttered. The path felt too cluttered and it felt wasn't clean enough and direct enough. Mm. So that's when I started to move away from that and look for something much more direct, much cleaner, much more accessible, and have a direct relationship to existence without having to chant a mantra. I wanted my consciousness to perceive, in those days, what I called God directly. Now I call it existence or awareness. Mm -hmm. what, so what did you find that was more direct? It was around that time, my early 30s, that I started to, based on some of the experiences I'd had earlier and in childhood, I started to realize that my consciousness was the tool which allowed me to interact. It was a sort of faculty woven into all of us that allowed me to interact directly with the energy of existence and that the energy of existence was not too big and grand to meet anyone on that level, that you could have direct access, direct experience. And then, you know, that there were a few sort of uh, properties of that experience, which I came to know as expansion, light and harmony, you know, the three sort of basic properties of existence. And that consciousness was required in order to step into that, in order to turn that from a living fact into a living experience, you needed to let consciousness uh, drink it in and or, or perceive it directly. So that's what started to arise within me, that knowingness. And that I passed on, you know, to those I was teaching and working with. 
Um, so this is something you pretty much discovered on your own. There wasn't any te yeah. teacher who showed you this or taught you this. Yeah. It was nothing. Um, obviously, I was still receiving guidance from all the unseen helpers, mm -hmm. and I can attest that they're very patient. <laughs> <laughs> They've got all the time uh, in the world. Yeah, exactly. And I've, I've used up quite a lot of it. So I just spent the last, you know, uh, 15 years really honing that and, and trying to describe it and simplify it too. Because, because of my experience with Christianity and Hinduism and Buddhism, it just seemed so unnecessarily busy. Yeah. The landscape was so busy and so complicated and didn't really seem stacked in favor of success. You know, the people going through that were either had already assumed that they were sinners and were going to be forever overlooked by existence, or some of them assumed, you know, that it's a really, really, really long trudge and you have to be really earnest and pious and didn't see much fun in that. Or the joy of life, the beauty of life didn't seem to be spoken about or represented, you know, got this tiny little mention in the uh, Indian esoteric tradition. But, you know, apart from that, you know, it didn't get much of a mention. So I felt that I wanted to tell other people about it. I wanted to put it into a language that was in everyday language. So it wasn't in Sanskrit, wasn't in Pali Canon, was in everyday English in this case, and that people could understand it and relate to it, but more importantly, experience it for themselves. Mm. So they didn't need to rely on a whole host of uh, gurus and teachers, even though that assistance is given. I sort of have the feeling, it's just my own personal theory, that that a reason for a lot of the falderal and the, the fanciness and the ceremonies and the rituals and, the, and all the stuff that gets layered on mm -hmm. in, in all these traditions is that people are lacking the direct, simple experience. They don't have access to it, and you got to keep them entertained. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, and even the, you know, the teachers, the priests, the, the, the gurus in some cases perhaps don't have as clear an experience of that essential reality as they might. And so they buy right into it also and are happy to in, in oblige and, and, you know, engage in all this fancy red shoes and pointy hats and all the other yeah. stuff that happens in, yeah. in religion. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think certainly my experience of, of Christianity and Hinduism was like that. You know, that you, you you've been studying yoga with a teacher for three, four months and, you know, feeling... Uh, very reverent, and then you find out he's sleeping with one of his students, you know, which is so often the case right. <laughs> with these Indian teachers. Uh, they're easily distracted. <laughs> and, uh, uh, I mean, of course, that isn't isn't the rule. It's the exception to the rule. But, I don't um, know. I think it's the other way <laughs> Yeah, you do come across <laughs> it quite often. And, and, and with, spiritual, uh, with uh, the spiritual Christian movement, uh, they're very well-meaning, but I sometimes questioned how deeply they were experiencing things for themselves. Whereas with Buddhism, I had a lot more respect for the teachers there um, because they did seem to have, you know, practice seemed to feature largely. And I did meet some incredible teachers. Mm -hmm. um, Arjan Buddha Dasa was the head of the Theravada movement, sort of the equivalent of the Dalai Lama um, and the Dalai Lama himself and many other, Lama Zopa Rinpoche, many wonderful uh, reincarnated lamas but still it was too 
too laden with with rules and regulations and uh, conditions, really. Yeah. And and I don't feel that existence actually places those conditions on us. You know, they, as you say, have built up over the years in order to gently guide the masses who, I think in the beginning, as it was explained to me, I don't know if it's the case, it was done that way because people didn't have the conscious ability to grasp the intangible directly and so they had to do it through the intermediary of story and myth and and legend and ritual so those sort of people got it uh, almost accidentally but for me that just wasn't going to work no and you know to each his own I, I don't think it would be fair of us to dismiss all that um, no right you know like for instance in the in the Indian tradition you have the Puranas and the Itihasas you have all these huge books of stories and you know mil millions and millions of people derive a lot of inspiration and upliftment from that um, and per, for them something you know as direct as what you're alluding to would probably seem ungraspable and abstract and they w they would just not be able to go there at this stage at that particular stage of their development mm. yeah. in many cases it's also seen as audacious it's it's like, seen like who are you to think you can exactly yeah, okay. yeah and so um and i think that was encouraged by certain teachers throughout the centuries because they didn't want to they didn't want to put themselves out of a job mm. um but they they Particularly, I see this in the Catholic Church that yeah, you're you need not allowed. Yeah. You need an intermediary that's been so-called uh, designated by God, and that you're not actually allowed to have your own uh, thoughts and ideas about God. So, you know, that I find doesn't match up with any experience of existence that I've ever had. <laughs> well, I, I would definitely say that you're beyond the intermediary stage. Although perhaps there might still be some intermediaries who would serve as a catalyst for you and, and be able to you know, fill in a few missing pieces, but you, you yeah. know, you're kind of on your own horse there. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, now, if, if we were to go back and you know, sit in the presence of Jesus or Buddha or something, we would, we would f I'm sure, find there wasn't a lot of you know, frills and, and ceremony. It was, it was pretty plain, vanilla, straightforward teaching. Um, and I think we would also find, at least in the case of Buddha, uh, from what I've heard, that a lot of people were actually getting enlightened in his presence, reach, you know, attaining nirvana or whatever we want to call it. You know, obviously that doesn't seem to happen as much in these institutionalized settings as it used to. Uh, or was that, did you experience otherwise? Um, I didn't experience otherwise, um, but I have had direct experiences with both Jesus and Buddha. So I can attest to the fact that their presence is uh, quickening to one's energy field. So that their light and their presence has a quickening effect on your energy field. Um, so that they can integrate levels of light and understanding um, that we can reach on our own, but might take a little longer to reach. Mm. However, if it were just their presence, then everyone who'd been in the presence of Jesus or Buddha or the other great masters would have walked away with that intact. But they didn't because the one thing they can't do is override your free will. And it's your free will that governs where you place your consciousness. Yeah. So it's only and you have to have a certain receptivity. Um, exactly. You know, pearls, yeah. pearls before swine and all that. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Okay, so you just dropped a bomb. You said you've, you've been in the presence of Jesus and Buddha or something along that nature. You've you got to elaborate on that. I don't know if it's fortune or design, but uh, or fortunate design, but I've I've always been able to access and speak with pretty much anybody who's ever existed, and obviously the, those that I'm drawn to are being such as uh, Jesus and Buddha. I also have spent a lot of time with Mother Mary. When you ask me, are any of the teachers that I've worked with are they? known to other people and i said oh yes because oh, yeah, <laughs> uh, they all are pretty much known yeah. so and even though personally christianity doesn't float my boat at all my lineage my soul lineage uh is very much around what is historically known as you know christian characters mm -hmm. so saint john the beloved peter the rock uh jesus mary mary magdalene and basically all of the disciples. Yeah, well, so I don't think Christianity would float Jesus's boat these, these days either. Uh, in fact, I read an article recently saying if Jesus were to come back now, would we actually recognize him? You know, <laughs> <laughs> and, or if he were to come to your church, you know, would he be thrown out or some, they, they examined points like that. And yeah. the conclusion was yeah. probably, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you, he would be thrown out. So where do these beings reside and what do they do? wherever they reside? Are, are they just sort of like, you know, floating on clouds? I mean, how do they spend their time, so to speak, if, if that's not a dumb question? Well, it doesn't quite work like that. I'm sure it doesn't. Um, it's, right? it's hard to put it into language, but if you imagine, obviously, you know, and, and your listeners probably aware that, you know, the, our physical earth reality is one particular vibration, one particular dimension. There are two below this, which the Christian Church have historically called the, the hell realms. There are uh, several beyond this point too, so in quicker states of vibration than our earth plane. And so um, as they leave the earth plane, they ascend, hence the term ascended master, into realms beyond the earth and they reside in that form in those realms. And so Characters like uh, Jesus and Buddha are able to traverse all of the realms simultaneously. You know, their wisdom is encapsulated. And even though they don't, they can take on that form, particularly with Jesus, seeing him in his Jesus form. But uh, Jesus is a bit of an anomaly, though, because he was Christed. And so his soul, his path, his story is, a, is another whole interview session the esoteric side of what happened during his life and the legacy that he left in other dimensions and in this dimension is is quite complex and, and, and beyond the average person, including myself. So Buddha, Jesus, all these great masters, they do still, they can still present themselves to you in that form, but I don't necessarily need them to show up in a sort of a human defined form for me to be able to access them. So I access their, their, their conscious beingness rather than their form. And that is available and much more easy than people think, available to everybody. So are they, um, if you don't mind my pursuing this because it really arouses my curiosity, are, are they um, primarily occupied with human well-being and concerns i mean they're you know 
millions of Christians, millions of Buddhists in the world, all sort of praying to Jesus, praying to Buddha, or you know, appealing to him in some way. Are, are they sitting on some level where they're actually reciprocating or interacting or acknowledging those, those prayers or those entreaties and, and helping to facilitate the, the, the growth or the enlightenment of the individuals who turn their attention to them? They can, but you said, are they primarily involved with human evolution? I would say they are solely involved with the conscious evolution of existence. As a whole. And, and, yeah, as a whole. And um, there are uh, certain masters, such as the, the, the Brotherhood of Light, which are overseeing the evolution of consciousness of the planet. But it's funny, you know, you pray to Jesus, you get a response. You pray to Buddha, you get a response. You do. But actually, they look after each other's people too. So, so you know, Buddha doesn't just take care of Buddhists and, and Jesus sure. doesn't just take care of Christians. There's no distinction in those realms as such at all. It, you're not read or assessed or defined by your languaging or even your faith you are read and assessed and assisted according to the quality and the volume of your the light in your field you know mm -hmm. so it's an absolute level playing field you know yeah. all beings are are seen and assessed the same way yeah i mean you might be a bushman in africa you know with a completely different um, esoteric worldview than any christian or buddhist and yet those very entities we've just been discussing might yes. be helping you in some way. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. But, you know, one part of your question was, are they giving assistance? Yes, they are giving assistance, but they don't target it only to their people, but they are absolutely 100% involved. Their whole life is given over into this, you know. I mean, we are all in service. There's no other way to spend your existence there's no other way to spend your time there's nothing to do other than be in service so <laughs> you may as well just get on with it yeah well you know i mean on a very mundane level people who are concerned with the betterment of the world uh you know can very often fe feel uh, hopeless and and frustrated i mean the multinational corporations seem to have so much power nothing okay. seems to be you know done getting done to really reverse global warming and you know and uh money is completely controlling the politicians and you know, all this stuff seems so so entrenched and so difficult to budge from, from the human perspective from the human does. perspective mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i kind of always feel like well yeah but the subtle is more powerful and if the subtle is is getting enlivened then somehow or other it'll save the day uh and that you know conscious intelligent forces much more powerful than global corporations will will somehow I mean, it almost seems like you know we're expecting you know something to like the christians who feel like the uh, the second coming is going to come and yeah. save them it, it almost sounds really pie in the sky like that but i'm talking about a, a subtler mechanics which i'm sure mm -hmm. you appreciate mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and agree with actually from the perspective of the other dimensions, you know, even the next dimension, the fourth dimension, you know, which is where human beings generally pass over to. So what we would term heaven mm -hmm. is really just, you know, the fourth dimension. But then, of course, the fifth, sixth, seventh dimensions where these elevated teachers and ascended masters are residing. Is that as far as it goes? Seven? 
Yes, they are considered to be three realms beyond that. But, you know, at that point, one brain short circuits <laughs> and cannot process the information, me included. I mean, I imagine we could spend hours mapping it all out and getting into the fine details of all these different levels and what's happening on them and all that. And probably, you know, that's another time and place. Yeah, it ends up being mind candy, though, because you listen to all that and you go, oh, that sounds cool. But actually, none of that information makes a jot of difference to our daily lives. Good point. So that I just tend to just say, you know, yes, it exists. Yes, it's there, but let's not worry about it. Let's just worry about yeah. how we can be better people on this planet at this time yeah. in our lives. Yeah. So f from, from other realms, we look at the earth and we see that what's happening here is not the result, as we've been told, of sin or an inherent flaw. It was really just a case of misunderstanding. We've misunderstood our design, the overall design of existence. And out of that misunderstanding, we inadvertently misuse. So our thoughts, our speech, our actions, all of the assumptions that we make are based on a tiny bit of information, you know, based on what the five senses can see and behold and work with. And yet that piece of information is one puzzle piece in this huge picture that we're missing. So when all of our conclusions are based on this one piece, we are naturally, you know, going to try and preserve this one piece. And that really is life on earth. You know, mm. it's a one piece of a much bigger puzzle. What's happening now is that all of the sort of areas of life that you've mentioned, you know, sort of the, the, the money machine and how the corporations are tapped into that, what's happening to the ecology of our planet and the disaffection and alienation that people are feeling and the social unrest. Uh, this is because the, the, the resident and resonant frequency of the planet is being sort of upgraded and recalibrated by those larger, subtler movements in evolution. And as they move into the physical structure, the emotional structure and the mental structure of the planet, they're starting to cause a little quickening in the vibration. And that's why we're starting to see unrest in all of those areas as, you know, the structures give way because they can't maintain themselves. They can't maintain that small perception, that small illusion in the face of those bigger energies. So that is happening. However, because there's no time outside of, you know, the space-time continuum, then there isn't the same sort of urgency or hurry that, you know, we sometimes assume there is here. And I think a lot of people, a lot of the proponents of change say, well, let's just do away with uh, corporations. Let's just do away with all of this, you know. But they still want to go to the cash point on Monday morning, you know, the ATM, and they still want their bank to function. They still want to buy stuff. They still want to go on holiday. They still want to eat. So we can't do away with it, but we can gently and lovingly upgrade it. And so that's where I've chosen to place my efforts to help to bring an understanding of the big picture with all the puzzle pieces in place and say, yes, we hear life on Earth in this small compartment, but we are part of a much, much bigger picture. And if we run our life on Earth, our, our individual mental processing, our emotional life, our physical life, as well as our societal structures and provision, 
if we run them with the bigger picture in mind, we will naturally be in alignment. We'll naturally be a good fit so that the actions we take will naturally bring benefit, bring harmony. The only reason we have so much disharmony with so much discord is because we are persisting and insisting on following this very, very narrow worldview, existence view that just simply isn't correct. Yeah, well, there's a lot of considerations there. I mean, well, I guess one is which is the cart and which is the horse. Is it, is, <laughs> horse is the one with four legs. <laughs> yeah. the cart's the one with two wheels. But is the kind of the vibration of the planet rising because people are engaging in spiritual practice or are people engaging in spiritual practice because the vibration of the planet is rising? And if so, what is raising the the vibration? Is it these higher beings we've talked about? Is it some kind of cosmic rays from the center of the galaxy? I mean, I've heard I've heard all kinds of theories, um, <laughs> sure the precession of the equinoxes and all that stuff. So, um, you know, what are the mechanics? And I hope this isn't a mind candy question because you know, like you're saying, if people just had a bigger picture and weren't so myopic in in their in their vision. Uh, we would run things differently. So even on an intellectual level, it's, I think, good to understand that there are these higher dimensions and, and much more subtler forces in play than our mundane perception would have us believe. Uh, and then, of course, we need to substantiate that with direct experience. It can't just remain an intellectual concept. But at least if we have some kind of idea of the, the, the roadmap or, or what's actually going on, it gives us a start. That's right. And so I try to bring it back into what a so-called individual human being can understand about their own experience. So bring it back and say your being is a microcosm of this macrocosm. Your being is the laboratory for you to uh, make experiments with what life is and to understand the design, the nature and the function of life. And to test it out, and that's what our experience is, you know, that's testing it out. And put what you come to understand through your experience into practice, into the wider world around you. The good news is when we base our thoughts and uh, speech and actions on true design, then, as I said, we automatically bring benefit, we automatically create harmony, you know, it's just, it's just a given. So I'm not advocating some utopian ideal of, oh, we all just need to meditate. We all just need to be nice to one another. I understand there's a, there's a bigger evolution of consciousness happening that will take time to filter through and integrate. But in answer to your question, it's both is happening. You know, we are starting to access those bandwidths as human beings much more in, in these times than ever before, uh, other than, you know, prehistory. And that is precipitating even greater help from the other dimensions. But they are also turning up the heat under our roasting pan because, you know, human beings have been given so many chances to come willingly to the next stage of their evolution and those elements which we all see and grieve for, which are holding on and seem to be resisting what brings universal benefit to mankind, we are receiving, you know, an intensified 
vibration frequency from from other dimensions now to help to facilitate that shift so both are happening yeah I was speaking to someone a couple of weeks ago, maybe it was just last week, and, and she was saying, well, you know, the problems are so bad these days, it's never been so dire. And I think there's, on the one hand, there may be some truth in that, because we've really reached the first time in human history in which our species could extinguish itself on the planet. Um, but on the other hand, I mean, 500 years ago, you would have been burned at the stake for saying what you're saying right now. And, yeah. you know, that kind of thing was, was typical weekend entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, a, it was a pretty primitive society, and there are actually pockets of that primitive mentality still on the planet in Afghanistan yeah. and places like that. Um, but it does seem that you know we live, despite all of our problems, it does seem we live in a more enlightened world. Well, having said that, you know, there are still people out there willing to burn me at the stake for what I say, particularly the sectors I've chosen to work in with business, uh, those who are have a meditation practice and just want to understand more about existence on, a, on their own personal level, they seem most open to the information. However, one individual at a time, there's a limit to how much change uh, we can bring about. So that's why I've sort of put myself forward to work with bigger business, to work with corporations, to work with government, to work with global organizations to help seed this understanding on a more systemic level. But when, there are, when you're working with those institutions, do you dumb it down or are you, do you actually talk uh, about the kind of stuff we're talking about here? I don't dumb it down, but I use I'm, I'm very specific with my language. So mm. I use everyday language. I use everyday examples. And I appeal to what is universal in the soul, which is the you know, desire to live well, mm -hmm. to be safe, to feel good. All of the things that we share. And everybody can relate to that, whether they're the CEO of a corporation you know, or a housewife in Idaho. There's a universal appeal to that. What they're willing to do in order to bring that about varies enormously. But I am actually encouraged by some, there are some corporations now that are really willing to put their companies in the service of mankind and the service of our planet. And that takes a lot of courage, but they're, they're just starting to appear now. So there's, there is hope on the horizon for those hmm. people who feel it's all doom and gloom. What kind of corporations would those be? Well, you know, there's the B corporations have started, which again have started um, around in California. The, the movement of conscious capitalism has mm -hmm. started again in California and is spreading is now here in the UK and is gathering steam. There are individual companies that have changed, such as Unilever, that have changed their practices to make them much more, not just holistic, not just green, because we've had both of those waves, but really starting to look at the fundamental purpose of business and seeing that it's not just, uh, you know, the bottom line profit, but that the purpose of business is to serve the planet that it's on. Mm. And once, once they make that transition, they're finding a sort of a new impetus and yeah, a, a new purpose, new reason for being in business. Seems to me that there are a number of corporations, um, such as, for instance, tobacco uh, or big oil, which really wouldn't have much of a place, if any, in what we might call an enlightened society, in a society where this transition that we're beginning to see inklings of had come full, full had run its course to a complete um, development. 
And there are others which would have to be radically transformed. Even the whole agriculture industry is um, doing most of what it does is unsustainable and probably not going to exist uh, 70 years from now if, if that's a, a reasonable timeline for when this whole transition is going to occur. So what would you say if you were invited to, say, speak to a tobacco company? Uh, I mean, knowing in the back of your mind that uh, what's actually going on is going to put them out of existence. My sense is that no matter how things look on the surface, that we as human beings are sort of very addicted to how things look on the surface. Mm -hmm. So no matter how things look on the surface, within each and every company, there is sort of buried light. And you just have to do your best, you know, through compassionate action and understanding to reach that light. If through their own free will, they choose not to follow that call, that everyone, that everyone contains, but not everyone follows. If they choose not to follow it collectively, then their you know, obsolescence is going to be a natural outcome. But there are examples of companies that look as if they're part of the traditional rape and pillage of our planet that have started to make you know, small steps mm. towards t turning things around. And so I think we in all cases can be surprised by what we can do, given the right intent and right energy. I don't know which companies will ultimately decide to do that, but I'm willing at least to put them in the picture and then let them decide to yeah. what extent they want to play. Well, it's cool because in a way you're like a secret agent that's going in and <laughs> working from the inside with some of the, I don't know what companies you're consulting with, but there's no reason why a company like BP couldn't, you know, channel much of its vast resources into alternative energy and solar and, and That's you know, right. stuff like that, uh, rather than uh, spending hundreds of millions of dollars trying to cause doubt about global warming. Um, so it would just be a matter, I suppose, of whatever it is that moves the policymakers to you know, make the policies they make. And, uh, yeah. That's one of the reasons why I've chosen to work with CEOs because they tend to be, you know, the visionaries and they tend to be the driving force behind the purpose and the vision and the intent of the company. But they also are having a hard time. You know, there are a lot of great CEOs out there who have good ideas, but they're finding it difficult to bring a more enlightened understanding even into their own cultures and structures. They sure. get a lot of kickback and resistance there. So we're trying to provide a safe platform, a safe environment for those individuals who really do want to make a difference and want to help their companies make a difference to kind of hothouse them and support them. Yeah. I mean, what would you say to the idea that uh, a company or a country, for that matter, is kind of governed ultimately by a certain collective consciousness? Yes. And that yes. regardless of how enlightened the CEO or the president of the country may be, they are pretty much at the mercy of that collective consciousness. Mm. I wouldn't say at the mercy because uh, certain key individuals have managed to ignite a passion and a vision with those that they work with to the extent that they can elicit change. Mm -hmm. But it's certainly true that they need to engage and turn around those cultures before they get the movement that they desire. And it's very often the case that they themselves, as you rightly said, 
uh, are much more uh, liberal and pioneering and free than the companies that they represent. Um, and, and oftentimes they confine themselves to their own sort of personal vision quest um, because they're not, they don't feel able to bring it. It takes a rare individual to be charismatic enough, determined enough and sure enough of themselves to be able to carry and influence and and reprogram the doubting culture that exists. Yeah, and if they try, they're, inevitably they're going to get a lot of flack. You know, yes. I, I live in Iowa and all the politicians come to Iowa, so we've had the opportunity to see President Obama a few times and I was had the opportunity to shake his hand on the rope line, they call it, and said to him, we love you, said, don't let the turkeys get you down. He, he laughed and he said, there's a lot of them out there. They just keep on gobbling. <laughs> <laughs> so you can imagine being in a seat like that and trying to yeah. uh, introduce some initiative that uh, represents, you know, a much more enlightened way yeah. of doing things and, and the flack you get when you try. Yeah. And I think also, you know, Nobody is really willing um, to stick their neck out and tell it like it is. And that is true of, you know, the sort of story behind how business and politics and money operates. But it's also true of how existence operates. If, if you look at those who were willing to really stand up and say, you know, actually existence is designed this way. This is its nature and this is its function. Even that doesn't go down well. It's not welcomed on our planet. Well, you get crucified, you get shot. You get crucified, you get shot, you can do. So until it is more widespread, the understanding of exactly what this thing called existence is, how we all come to be, you know, how is it that we can have experience? How can we exist? How can we formulate a thought? How can we make a sentence? How can we even reach out and pick up our water? None of this is really understood, you know, and science has come a long way, but is still operating with a ceiling above its head. And even those within science that try to move beyond that understanding are also castigated. Mm -hmm. So there seems to be a particularly sort of energetic resistance to embracing and understanding and acknowledging how we are designed, what is really happening with us, uh, and to move away from the story that the five senses is giving us into that sixth sense of consciousness producing experience. So until that happens, we are going to see the endless iterations of the illusion and the storyline and the dynamics and the mechanics and all of the posturing that goes on. It's all just moving furniture around in the same room. Hmm. It's interesting. I, I think what you're saying here speaks to something very fundamental to the structure of creation. You know, in the, in the Hindu uh, realm, they have Satwa Rajas and Tamas, and, and Tamas is said to be inertia kind of holds things back but all three are considered necessary for the actual creation to exist if you just had pure creativity unbridled without any 
checks and balances without, without anything to sort of individuate and, and solidify and, and so on, then we wouldn't have the sort of creation in which we find ourselves living. It would be, I don't know what it would be, it wouldn't work. Well, it would, ke- it would keep moving on. It wouldn't be able to maintain its structural integrity. So the oak tree would come into existence, but then would pass away again very quickly. It needs to have a kind of staying force applied on it to be able to maintain its presence yeah. in that form. And you also have Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva. Brahma is the creator. Vishnu is said to be the maintainer and mm-hmm. Shiva the destroyer. Mm-hmm. And, and you need all three elements in order for there to be a viable creation. So did you ever yourself getting back to your personal story for a minute, have, you know, what you would have, what you would call a, an awakening, uh, a, a satori, a, a nirvana that was a, a watershed moment for you beyond, and you never went back. It was like you got enlightened. Um, I don't use the word enlightened because it's, to me, it seems very loaded and is actually, for all the people I've worked with, it's actually a huge hindrance. It causes them so much grief that I actually say to people, don't don't shoot for that as a goal. You know, you can be continuously, consciously content. That's a much better goal. Mm. I don't think there was a single like smackaroo blurdy moment that changed everything. Mm-hmm. But I do remember there was a period during which things were occurring to me And so I use the term truth realized. So I realized the truth in that period of time. And it was a series of moments. Mm -hmm. And that has never left me. So that's somehow emblazoned. So it was basically being gifted the the knowledge of the, the structural mechanics of existence. Sort of being able to go behind, you know, the Wizard of Oz curtain and look and see you know, what is bringing all this into being. And I might add, because uh, I tend to piss off the scientists because I, I talk in very general terms about this. So I have an absolute knowingness of the validity of that experience, but I wasn't necessarily shown it in, you know, like a microscopic view. It was more, I was just given the, the general truth of it. Okay. And that's, been the basis of everything that I've done since. So that did happen, but I wouldn't really call it enlightenment because enlightenment, as I understand it, is when the truth that you know is fully uh, integrated and realized in your energy body, in your full energy bodies. And that is, for me, a work in progress. Beautiful answer. I ask because sometimes people portray enlightenment or awakening, and most people are a little squeamish about the word enlightenment, but let's say awakening, as, mm-hmm. as a sort of a black-white on-off situation. And they even use the argument, it's like pregnancy. Either you're pregnant or you're, or you're not, you know? Um, but if you walk up to a woman who's maybe one month pregnant and say, whoa, you really look pregnant, you know, you're likely to offend her. But if you walk up to somebody who's eight months pregnant and say that, you'll have a nice conversation about motherhood or something. So it seems to me there are degrees of, of maturity of awakening. And I suppose there is a single moment at which you become pregnant, but it might actually, you know, it might not be, you probably aren't aware of it. Uh, yes, and, and it might that's... grow by degrees to the point where you, re- you begin to recognize symptoms. Yes, and that's that's a very good analogy. I do remember the point where I realized that I realized, mm-hmm. and then that was that was a 
Ah, so yes, we could call that an awakening. And as I said, I use the term truth realization just because I like to use very functional terms, you know, to get away from all of this jargon around spirituality and that, you know, spiritual seekers have their own language that no one understands. And just to put in everyday terms, yeah, I realized something. However, again, you know, if you go around saying, oh, I realized the truth, people get jittery about that too. Yeah. You know, who, who are you pompous. to say, yeah, it sounds pompous and... But if you qualify so, it, you know. You can qualify it, but but that sounds like justification. So what I've chosen to do is just, you know, this is what I understand. This is, you know, the ways that I explain it. And then you can see if it works for you and let people find it within their own experience. Now, when you mentioned it a few minutes ago in response to my question, you, when you described the, this realization of truth, it was sort of in terms of a realization of the mechanics of creation or something. But usually when people talk about awakening or, or realization, it's in terms of self-realization, recognizing the self as pure universal consciousness, as opposed to one, you know, regarding oneself as a flesh-bound you know, little thing. So how would you explain this in terms of self-realization? Well, that's a very perceptive point. I always found it difficult to experience the individuated self. So it doesn't seem, you know, the self in most cases is, you know, the I of the, of the small self. And for me, the I has always been the higher self. So it didn't feel like there was a small self to have that realization. You know, all along, I've always felt that I was the higher self. Interesting. Uh, however... I do have a personality, I do have an identity, you know, I do have a temperament, I do have a disposition, I do have likes and dislikes and all of those things that come with the human realm. But I have a much more tenuous connection to that than most people would. For me, my focus in that moment and in all moments, in all my meditations is not so much on there's no me, the I that I experience is the I of universal consciousness. So to me, it seems very normal and natural that I should understand that rather than this. Yeah. Some people argue that since you can't actually find a, a nugget of an individual self, no matter how you, hard you look, that there isn't <laughs> one, you know, uh, that, it's, that there is no self. No, and many teachers base their whole teaching on this. And they even go to conclude things like, well, since there is no individual self, there couldn't be reincarnation because there's nothing to reincarnate, you know, and, and there couldn't be free will because there's no, no one to decide and, and so on and so forth. Um, what would you say to that argument? I'd say it's, um, it's half-baked. Again, you know, it's, it's much more elegant than, you know, these sort of black and white kind of scenarios that people propose. We exist on a spectrum, just like the dimensions do. We exist right across that spectrum. Our, our physical self is going to ha make certain conclusions around life based on our genetics, based on our cultural environment, based on our education, based on you know, our, our family and friends and based on the times in which we are born. You know, so there's all those influences feeding into the physical self, which gives it a uniqueness for that particular incarnation, as well as, you know, the astrology, whether you buy into that or not, they you know that's also going to be unique for each incarnation and for each person. 
So all of those are X factors which are slightly calibrating you differently to your neighbor. So that creates that diversity that we see. When we move into the fourth dimension, we start to see the soul self. The human incarnations get sort of uploaded into this vehicle of the soul self. And the soul self is the capsule which goes through subsequent incarnations. And each of the individual incarnations just gets passed up into the soul self. So the soul self is the uh, repository for that knowledge in each incarnation. Mm -hmm. At the same time as the soul self is, is, is receiving that information up from in, in the individuated uh, physical bodies, it's also receiving the influence coming down from the higher self. So that's the, the self which stays forever connected into those higher realms and is never divorced from. So we're existing right across that all of the time. So the soul self is the sort of the capsule or the vehicle which propels us from incarnation to incarnation. The free will is another sort of faculty which is tied to our use of consciousness. So we can we can direct our attention. We can direct our will towards making choices, you know, which is a uniquely human experience. So to say that there's no self to exert free will is is misunderstanding the the full design of how we're put together that's a beautiful answer and, and it's a very nuanced understanding that i think would be a benefit to be you know more widely propagated because a lot of spiritual speakers these days aren't so nuanced and and like you say it's they're they're more kind of black and white than that i mean couldn't we kind of borrow an understanding from physics where if I take my hand, for instance, um, and, and look deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, I get to the point where it's all there is actually no material substance and there's no hand and it's all just sort of this unmanifest potentiality. But still, on on a practical level, I have a hand. You know, you could say it's ultimately unreal, but that's not really a practical consideration. And you can say gravity is ultimately non-existent, but don't go jumping off buildings to prove it. You know, so. Uh, I mean, there's this, as you say, there's this full spectrum of creation, ma yeah. many, many dimensions. And each dimension, although you can dismiss it as unreal if you want to analyze it closely enough, each dimension has its own level of reality, its own laws, its own, and, and deserves its due. And Those who say, you know, that nothing exists, they're talking about, you know, the formless realms and they're talking really about those three higher realms which do not require form in order to exist. Hmm. So the, for, the formless realms, the fifth, sixth, and the seventh, have a very rapid frequency. And when consciousness resides there, the concern and the degree to which the, the physical or even the formed is given waiting is really, really, really minimal. Hmm. So that's where people start to talk about, oh, nothing exists, and it's all illusion they're talking from that place but simultaneously you also have a soul self that is actually seeking incarnation is actually seeking individuated experiences in order to expose itself to a wide variety of experiences and situations and people in order to learn more and why does it want to do that well you know, existence exists, that's, that's clear, and that's the formless part, which is the unchanging. 
but existence wants to know that it exists. So existence wants to experience itself and the only way it can do that is by creating consciousness, which so its consciousness is growing within the totality of existence, and it's that growing consciousness of itself that is the evolution of consciousness. We're never going to have more existence or less existence than we've got now. Existence is what it is, but the extent to which existence knows itself consciously and therefore experientially is changing and growing and emerging and mm. that's the whole purpose of of human beings is to feed that information up into to add to the great knowingness yeah and wouldn't you say not only human beings but dogs and cats and germs and the entire universe why, why did it come into existence in the first place of course of course i mean there's uh it's interesting though that dogs and cats and germs don't have consciousness in the same way and this sets a lot of people off because they say oh no they're sacred and you know they have awareness but not conscious awareness not so we self, have to not make self-awareness self-awareness exactly so we have to make these distinctions yeah. otherwise we um, are misunderstanding again and you know with the best of intent we can still be barking up the wrong tree <laughs> or meowing <laughs> as the case may be <laughs> Yeah, and if you look at their nervous systems, it's clear that there's less development there. You know, we have more sophisticated brains, and so it, uh, it stands to reason that we're going to have a more sophisticated capacity for self-recognition. Yes. However, because they don't have that, they have a far greater capacity for direct connection to awareness, mm. which is you know, well documented and shown and most people accept that, you know, because they are tuned in directly to the intelligence of existence and operate from that. So on the one hand, they don't have the capacity for individuated self-reflection, but on the other hand, they are uh, amazing examples of if your mind can get out of the way, mm. this is what you're able to sort of be and download and uh, express. It's an interesting point, and some people actually jump to the conclusion that animals are enlightened, or by the same token, babies are enlightened because they seem, yeah, they seem exactly. so innocent. And yet, you know, you have to kind of pass through this minefield of evolution and be right. before you can kind of get to a, the point at which you have the innocence of an animal or a baby, and yet, you know, a whole new level of yeah, but you have to choose it consciously rather than mm. just have it as, as a, as a God-given faculty. Yeah. Okay, so uh, I want to give you a chance to talk a little bit about what you offer, what you teach. Um, I listened to all of the tapes, all, all, I haven't yet done all the guided meditations, but I listened to all the talks in your uh, Changing the Paradigm series and enjoyed that very much and I'm all for changing the paradigm. Um, <laughs> so would you like to touch upon what's in that series and what you're trying to do with people and uh, sure. uh, and it's not just corporations and stuff. I mean, people can order, no, no. order these recordings and do it in Absolutely. their homes and so on. Yeah, you know, the, the work that I'm doing with businesses and corporations has come latterly. Uh, you know, I started working with individuals. So I've been asked, uh, I've been asked, the honest answer is that I was asked by the Brotherhood to do this, mm -hmm. you know, to make these teachings available. How about the sisterhood? Um, Say again? Is there a sisterhood? No, you know, which just 
pisses the feminists not off no end. You know, I've had <laughs> I read I read emails from them before, but <laughs> to me the word doesn't upset me at all. It just means a, a fraternity, which it still implies men. I know of beings of all genders. Yeah, but I mean, gender or, or is gender is irrelevant so, at that level. Exactly, of course. Yeah. And you know, the the word brotherhood was just simply coined at a time when they understood things to be working through groups of men, you yeah. know, and, and, and you've the, mentioned Mother Mary and Mary Magdalene and all that. So, yeah, yeah. so those terms and, and they are also part of the brotherhood. Right. Uh, so those terms have just stuck and I don't I don't get hung up on them, but some people do. So you were asked. I was asked to make these teachings uh, available and um, now, sort of a, excuse me, not to be um, just because people have these kind of questions. I, I can just hear people saying, wait a minute. How did she know what she was asked? What in what form did that re request come? Was she, right. you know, did she hear a voice? Did she see a vision? How does she know it's not just her imagination? Try to substantiate that a little bit for people. Well, I said earlier that I've just throughout my life, and particularly through my adult life, I've had um, an ability just without trying to be able to tune in with these teachers and masters mm -hmm. and guides. And so a lot of the information that comes to me just comes to me as a, as a readily known download. Mm -hmm. So I just know that I know. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't need any sort of process of substantiation within my own being. It's a kind of, it comes with a level of certainty and trust that is its own messenger, if you like. It relates in some ways to the kind of trust and certainty I felt as a child. It was just simply un, unquestioned. And I know for a lot of people, unquestioned equates to a lack of discernment, right. which is what they're worried about. Mm. Yeah. Uh, but the, the fruits of the work speak for themselves. And so, you know, the process of how it came about is, is less important, less exciting. So... It was really to make known what I had already, I've already described about this, this is possible for every single human being to have direct access to the energy of existence in any given moment. So that's the thrust of the teachings. It also became known to me that these were going to be available through a series of CDs and that it was going to be three volumes. And I did, you know, consciously tune in to see what topics were going to be there and feel that we've covered, you know, the first volume, Seeds of Enlightenment, sort of covers the general principles that we need to understand in order to navigate on a yeah, day-to-day Yeah, I actually have the titles here, Conscious Awareness in the Present Moment, Intention and Feedback, Overcoming Limitation, Energy Centers, Energy Bodies, Trust and Surrender, Changing the Paradigm, and Benevolent Intelligence. Yeah. So that's really just introducing people to some of the nuts and bolts that are that are part of it. Mm -hmm. Then with Embracing Freedom, we really wanted to create a volume that dealt with, you know, what are the major issues for people on a daily basis? Sure, they want to be enlightened. Sure, they want to know more. Everybody wants to live in ease and peace. You know, it goes without saying. So what are the kind of things that trip people up? that they need, you know, which seem like small things, but they need to be able to be proficient and conversant with these issues before they can move on 
in any in real way. Mm -hmm. So that's what embracing freedom was really to just deal with, you know, the pitfalls of daily human life. Yeah. Let me read the titles of that one. Okay. Is, is willing and allowing, holding consciousness steady, clear light mind, meaning, physical body, self-acceptance, self-responsibility, balance, humility, confidence, the nature of giving and unseen helpers. And yeah, that's, that's, that's all. Yeah. yeah. And then the third one was really to open the doors of the design of existence and say, look, this is how the, these are the sort of energetic structural components of existence. And this is how you can participate in that directly. Mm -hmm. um, so looking at uh, the, the not only the mechanics, but particularly the frequency. So Infinite Grace, the third volume, is specifically introducing people to those higher frequency states that everybody desires and, and very, very people understand. Mm -hmm. So um, working with uh, the structural mechanics of expansion and light and harmony and, and all the states that are possible through that. Yeah. And I should say that um, each volume is sort of a back and forth between a an introduction in which you explain the principles of what you're g going to do, and then a guided meditation in which people can experience what, yes. you, what you've just explained. Yeah, which is really important, and that's where the rubber meets the road. Mm -hmm. You know, you can listen to all the introductions, you can listen to them every day. Some people I know have them on a loop, you know, in their house. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a nice piece of information, but doesn't exact any transformation unless we practice it, unless we integrate light consciously into our energy field, when we won't get to call it our own, we won't get to experience it. We'll always have these states as a nice holiday destination, but it won't be like a permanent residence. Mm -hmm. How so, many people have done these courses? Oh, hundreds of thousands. Wow. Yeah. Now, yeah. when people um, go to your website and look at this, they're going to say, she must be a very rich woman. You know, <laughs> and, and that money thing always comes up, so you might as well address it. There's, there's always, you know. Well, I'll tell you the truth right here. Mm -hmm. I get 7% wow. of the profit of the sales. Where does the rest of it go? To the company that paid for it all to happen. So, uh, no, I'm not a very rich woman, but I'm a very content woman, and uh, I'm a woman that's happy with my level of service. Mm -hmm. So I get paid in other ways. Yeah. So the CDs is one avenue. The other avenue that we offer is a DVD, which was just a recording of a retreat I did, which is yet another avenue. So each year, actually not this year, but each year in California, we've put on a public retreat where people can come and, you know, spend time, you know, three, four, five days. And those I love. Those have been fantastic. Amazing bunch of people turn up each year. And uh, we have a lot of fun and deep learning. So that's been great. This year, I'm going to be at Findhorn in October, end of October. So I won't be in California. Is People that when come. your retreat usually is, late October? No, it's usually around June time. Okay. Yeah, May, June time. So this year, it's going to be in October. And... Uh, and so those are the ways that I've been working with people for many, many years, as well as doing private mentoring and doing groups. And what kind of, of results have you seen? Um, you, you have all these hundreds of thousands of people. You've been working for many years. I mean, how many people have awakened to some degree in the direction of what you have experienced? How, to what extent have you been able to impart or convey or, or enable replicate. others? Yeah, replicate. Yes. 
Well, you can, people can go to the testimonials on the website okay. and we have hundreds and hundreds of testimonials and we put up, you know, a fraction of that on our website. Uh, we're very fortunate in so much as um, the teachings are very clean, they're very pure and they're given that way freely mm -hmm. so that people are able to experience it very directly and it's made a significant change I think in a lot of people's lives so we don't have we have the data to know that there's people in 62 countries around the world using our material but we don't necessarily sometimes we take the odd survey you know and ask people what's happening uh, but we have amazing testimonials of things that have happened in people's lives um, and it's all very positive it's very gratifying and we're very lucky in so much as we have pretty much 99.9%, you know, 100% satisfaction rate. So we've been very blessed in that way and, and wonderful people that we've got to work with. So, mm. yeah, they're a nice community. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, as I say, yeah. I've, I've listened to them all. I'm one of these people who's just mainly listened to the introductions. I, I listened to a bunch of the, of the meditations, but I, was, I haven't... I, I meditate a lot every day, but I have, I have my own way of doing it. I, ha, I really should devote some time to sitting, and, and I'd like to, yeah. to just going, going through your thing. Yeah. yeah, well, some some people say, uh, one of the things we hear a lot is that, you know, I've been meditating for 30 or 40 years, and doing your meditations has actually brought me to the place that I've been trying to get to all that time. Oh, that's great. So those are the kind of comments that we hear regularly. I've never considered myself much of a visualizer, you know, when when I listen to a guided meditation, they're talking about, oh, now see, you know, you experience yeah. this and that. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of like, it's kind of a amorphous <laughs> mush and I'm not really kind of visualizing it very clearly. You yeah. know? But that comes too though, that comes with practice mm. and sometimes there's too much depending on how we're wired as well, you know, if you if you have the kind of meditations where you go into a very peaceful state and you just want to maintain that peace and keep the mind at bay, then you know a lot of words can seem sort of almost like it's crashing in on that environment. Yeah. I mean I always say, I'm very clear with people, I'm not about giving anybody just a nice ride, you know, this is not about just making you feel good about yourself or the world these teachings are designed to make you free but actually what I've discovered over the years is that the percentage of people who actually are willing to go through the process of freedom is minuscule compared to those who say they want it mm -hmm. and those who say they want it is minuscule compared to all the beings on the planet actually most people even though they want to be happy, they want to be content, they want to be successful, they don't necessarily frame that in terms of freedom. The Bhagavad Gita says something like that too, you know, it sort of narrows it down from, you know, those who haven't even heard of it to those who hear of it and those who actually do something about it to those who actually realize it. I mean, it becomes this, you know, very small subset. <laughs> There's three of us left. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How many kids do you have? Four. Four, uh, ranging in you know, quite, a, quite an age range. Uh, yeah, 10 to 23. So um, this is a rubber meet the road, meets the road situation. <laughs> I mean, how, you know, with all of your, you know, beautiful transcendent experience and all that, um, how easy was it to, uh, you know, uh, meet the challenges of, of marriage and family life? Not that easy. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, meeting the beingness of my children is just a piece of cake. It's the area of my life where I can instantly feel bliss and contentment 
you know, just being around my children and just tuning in with them and just holding them and loving them and witnessing them and experiencing them. So that comes very readily and easily and is something I very much enjoy. In terms of, you know, the discipline and organization of making sure that there's always a meal on the table, that everything is done in advance. And that I did quite well, I, I will admit. In terms of the mental strength <laughs> and the sheer busyness and noise of a household where three of them were young at the same time that I didn't ace at all that mm. I really struggled with because I'm as you can probably guess quite a sensitive person and sometimes there's the clamor and the clatter of an active busy noisy demanding household I didn't do well with mm. so it's not all one way but I feel that my forte is in loving my children and they will grow up feeling absolutely seen and loved. That's great. I, I wanted to ask you that question because, um, you know, I think it's very common for people to either aspire to spiritual experience or to have one and yet have a really hard time integrating it in practical life. In fact, I interviewed this woman about a month ago named Prajna Ginti, and, and she was sort of like you prior to the children, you know, just having these sublime experiences and going into samadhi for hours on end and all. And then she um, gave birth to twins three months premature and ended up with this incredibly intense challenge uh, and, you know, nearly brought her to suicide <laughs> but but she kind of came around and, and eventually rose to the challenge and uh, is has come full circle you know in, in, in terms of really living a very enlightened life while still raising these these yeah. developmentally challenged girls yeah yeah well you know I'm I'm no longer married to my husband mm -hmm. uh, although we have a wonderful co-parenting relationship. So I've had to also really take hold of the challenge of providing for myself and my mm. children and, you know, making my way in the world and, and all of that. I've had to keep a lot of plates spinning. And um, I tend to acquire animals too. So as well as uh. having four children, I end up with five animals as well. So I have horses and cats. And so there's a lot of responsibility. There's a lot to do. And yeah. so I don't always feel entirely gracious with all of that. Well, you're, you're very honest in saying that. And people appreciate that. Uh, and you're also setting a good example for, you know, it's, we've all got challenges. If you don't mind my asking, and feel free to decline to answer this. I probably shouldn't even ask. But in terms of your husband, you know, was there sort of a problem with being on such different wavelengths, you being so kind of spiritually oriented uh, and most people aren't? Um, no, I don't think that was so much of an issue for him. I think for me, I'm a curious case even for myself mm -hmm. in so much as I've always, since a young child, had this readily available, unfettered access to the heavens. Right. But I haven't always been able to directly translate that into living life well as a human being. So I've had all of the same lessons that anybody would have had. And, and you would say to me, well, why didn't you make use of that information that you had access to? I have. 
I have made use of that information, but you still need to apply it on a daily basis and you need to make sure it's integrated to such a level that it is automatic. Yeah. So that is a process that I'm going through just like anybody else. Mm -hmm. So in terms of my ability to relate to another human being as a life partner, whether it's my husband or another partner, then I have some of the challenges that anybody would have in that situation. The beauty is that when I experience difficulty, that I have an amazing resource that I can draw on to be able to make sense of that and to really see it on a full spectrum level. I'm not committed to being in the problem. I'm not destined to be in the problem. I have the possibility of seeing beyond the problem, seeing beyond the individual human self into a wider sense. Yeah, beautiful answer. You're giving lots of nice answers. In other words, you're not totally blinkered by the situation at hand. You, there's sort of other dimensions exactly that you right. bring to bear on Yes, yeah. exactly right. Yes, well put. Yeah. yeah. And and I'm very grateful for that, you know, and there have been periods of my life where I didn't, maybe I took that access for granted because it's been there all along. Mm -hmm. it, it, there was a stage in my life where it was much more normal for me to speak to Jesus than it was to speak to my mother. <laughs> you know, um, I, I get on better with him than I do with my mom, you know, so yeah. I've always been orientated to the non-physical beings. That, that side of things is easy for me, but to really make this pledge to show up as a human being and let all of that wisdom, all of that light come into my everyday life, that, that is, that's a, an ongoing process. Yeah. And I do it with as much humility and honesty and goodwill as I can. Well, you know, there's that famous saying that we're not physical beings having a spiritual experience, we're spiritual mm -hmm. beings having a physical experience. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think that's probably true of every, everyone, but it's, it's interesting to meet somebody for whom that, who's living that large, you know, and who's really consciously experiencing a much fuller mm -hmm. significance of that phrase. Yeah. Um, well, I, I, the reason I say I'm a bit of an odd case is most, most beings have a certain degree of, of conscious knowingness and they are trying to extend that and, mm -hmm. and expand that conscious knowingness. I am an unusual case in so much as I normally reside in these realms mm -hmm. and whereas that's home for me and I don't often incarnate. So the process of incarnation and the taking hold of a body and operating the physical body which is you know exactly what happened when i was a child yeah. you know the taking hold of that physical body that my beingness was at a, a different frequency to my right. physical form and there was this slight mismatch that process has been uh has not been straightforward for me so i'm actually feel like i'm trying to become more human as most of the people around me are trying to become less human. Well, that's an interesting tidbit. I'm glad you brought that out just now. So you're looking at the big picture now and saying that for most of your existence as a soul, at least in recent ages, yeah. uh, you have not been human. Uh, yes. You, you've been living on some other plane. Yes. Um, primarily. And that, you know, this is a bit of a, a dip into concreteness that you haven't, you haven't <laughs> been accustomed to <laughs> so much. Exactly. I've had cause to regret that decision on some occasions. Right. It's like, oh, wait a minute. Stop the world. I want to get off. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. 
Well, uh, um, this has been delightful. I have another interview coming up in about five minutes. So I'll have to wrap up, but um, we'll do this again one of these days. You know, you're, yeah. you're one of these people that I feel like I've just scratched the surface and uh, that we could somehow work it out. Um, and I, I say this with apologies to a lot of the people I've interviewed who are clamoring for a second interview. We'll, we'll do it eventually. There's over a thousand people on the list clamoring for a first one. I feel like there's a lot more to unpack with you. And, you know, maybe even five years from now, a lot of stuff will have unfolded that you haven't done That's right. yet. You That's know? right. You, so yes. we'll see how it goes. But, well, I've um, enjoyed it too, so thank you very much. Yeah. Did anybody ever tell you you look a lot like the American actress Vera Farmiga? I, I'm not familiar with her. But... Uh, see, uh, look her up. <laughs> okay, I will. <laughs> but, but before we conclude, let me just make some uh, wrap-up points that I always make. Um, people who are listening to this, you've been listening or watching an interview in an ongoing series. Uh, there are about 230 of them so far, and you'll find them all archived on batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P. And there, um, Jetta Molly will have her own page for this interview, and I'll have information about her and a link to her website and, and so on. So you can follow through to that and get in touch with her. There are also several different indices of the, of the previous interviews. There's an alphabetical one down the right-hand side. There's a chronological one under past interviews. Um, there will eventually be a geographical one. There's a topical one, you know, and trying to categorize people in terms of different what, what they do. So explore all that. There's another menu which says future interviews, and there's a place where you can see the upcoming ones. You can, you can suggest a guest if you like. There's a menu for that. Um, and there's also an upcoming events uh, page where, you know, I haven't really done this comprehensively yet, but all the people I've interviewed, uh, or some of them anyway so far, you can see events that they may be offering in different parts of the world. Then there is a donate button, which I appreciate people clicking. Uh, makes all this possible. I want to continue to make this available for free to everyone who likes to watch, but that depends upon some people um, donating if they feel inclined. There's a place to sign up to be notified by email of each interview as it's released. You won't get really any emails other than that. You get about one a week. There's a discussion group that crops up around each interview, and there'll be one for this interview specifically. You'll see a link to it. And there's also a link to an audio podcast on iTunes, so you can subscribe to that if you don't feel like just sitting in front of your computer watching things for hours on end. You can just listen while you're cutting the grass or something. So thanks for listening or watching, and we'll see you next week. And thank you again, Jed. It was really a joy. Yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed meeting you. Thank yeah. you very much. All righty. Take care. Bye. Bye.